Hi and welcome to The Three Good Podcast, a weekend podcast where I talk about all things to do with positive psychology, well-being, resilience, mental health and emotional intelligence. I'm your host, Sukhpavia. Hi everybody and happy Saturday. Hope you're having a, a good start to your February, wherever you're up to. So today, for me, has been a day of completing some DIY I started a few weeks back. I really hate DIY folks, it's just not my thing. It's, there's always something that inevitably goes wrong, like it's, and it's not even that I end up having like uh, the odd pieces left over, which thankfully this time hasn't happened. But when I did it a couple of weeks back and I completed a set of drawers, I realised that there was one piece which was turned around the wrong way and it was at the bottom of the set of drawers, which means if I needed to correct the whole thing, I would have to dismantle everything in order to correct it. I really can't be bothered, and so I'm leaving it. This is why I don't like DIY, because I just don't pay enough attention to detail to those kinds of things. Enough of that. So what else has been going on for me lately? This week has been a really good week for uh, physical wellness. Really, really pleased with um, having gone to Pilates. Went to the gym twice and I went swimming. For me, that mix of activities really helps me to know that I'm doing a good range of stuff to help keep me physically well. And when I keep myself physically well, I know that I then have the space to be able to be emotionally and mentally well as well. Because I know I'm taking care of my body and I know that in doing that, I'm allowing, I've got a store of resilience that I'm helping build in myself. And um, one of the reasons that are, um, that's important to me is that I recognise also that in the coming months, there's going to be some things I'm going to be going through, which I know are going to be hard and challenging on a personal level, and I want to make sure that I, I go into that stuff as well as I can so that, I'm, so that I don't get too affected. I will be affected by that stuff, and I'll be sharing that with you all as time goes on. Uh, but today, uh, what I wanted to discuss and start um, some thoughts around was uh, around the topic of emotions and how I think that's connected to the thinking that we go through, the quality of thinking and the, and the depth of thinking that we allow ourselves for. So I guess for me the interesting thing around emotions started probably about 13 years ago when I first started in the world of work that I do, learning development and I started to come across this concept of emotional intelligence. I didn't really know what it was. I didn't really know what it meant. And I remember going, I remember um, hearing a speaker talk on the topic. And that's when I first started hearing things around the amygdala hijack and the way that um, the flight of fright response or fight response and it was interesting to me because some of those things 
I hadn't covered in my psychology studies that I'd done through my undergrad and through my postgrad. And so it was it was a new language around these things that we call emotions and it really sparked an interest and and from there I, I've always been attuned to it to try and understand what that's meant to mean. And then I started to get into the work of Goleman, as I think many people did, and started to explore his concept of emotional intelligence and what he had meant by it. And, you know, that early work, I think, well, it wasn't even early work, that work that he produced, I think, for me, was a really helpful place to be able to start from. And then, as the years went on, it became something uh, that I, I started to pay attention to in my own practice, in respect of what do I understand about my self-awareness with my emotions, not just uh, and uh, not just the emotions, but also my behaviours. So, how do I know if I'm having an impact on others? What that impact is? How am I behaving just at all with other people? If uh, what, what are the signals that I'm reading from other people? How do I allow that to inform me of um, if what I'm doing is helpful or if it's uh, not necessarily harmful, but if it's putting people at clear discomfort? And there was a lot of stuff actually around all of that, which just kept me, I, I kept coming back to, I kept regularly trying to tune into and it took me I guess it's take, it took me a good couple of years to start to I don't think I ever articulated any of it but I started to get a much better sense that I, I understood as a facilitator and as a trainer that if I acted and um, instructed a group in a certain way that they would respond in a certain way and what I started to observe also was leaders in the organization who really started to pay who who were paying also attention to the quality of thinking that they were putting forward for other people and the way that they were responding to people helping build them up helping create strength helping create a sense of inclusion and at you know I'm talking probably about ten years ago now, maybe eight years ago, and around that time, a lot of this language was quite novel, it was quite new, and in today's world, a lot of this language feels a lot more accessible and it feels a lot more readily talked about in organizations and in companies and and so i I started to feel more of an affinity towards the topic of emotional intelligence and was very aware at the time that there was some academic work done in this field. So there was some early work by uh, the likes of Salovey and Mayer. I think I've got those names right. We, uh, there was this, uh, there was a body of work done by the EI consortium, if I recall rightly. And, and so there were, there was, there was efforts to try and um, measure emotions and to try and help people to understand what emotions were, which ones we could 
define and to what strength we uh, we had each uh, uh, any kind of set of beha- any set of emotions as a set of behaviors or leadership behaviors or competencies so that's like it interests me quite a lot about how how we how we understand those things these things called emotions and at some point there was a, a an interesting piece of work I remember coming across where the um, where the trainer uh, not the trainer but the consultant was talking about the physiological ways that we can express our emotions and I'd never really considered that before and it was the first time I was introduced to the work of Paul Ekman and his work on facial um, coding system uh, uh, and um, essentially what he'd been able to identify were that there are certain facial expressions which match very closely to certain emotions and they are at that time the research told us that um, these are uh, widely um, recognizable across most cultures so it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you saw an expression of, say, for example, surprise or disgust, you may not have the verbal language to communicate that with the other person, but the facial language would help you to understand that that person was having a certain reaction to something. And that became really interesting to me as well, because it really started to help me understand that there's this really intricate connection of emotions what we feel how we express that and how we express it both in a verbal and a non-verbal way and up until that point i remember doing a fair bit of training around non-verbal language and it being quite rudimentary and uh you know there's there's an oft quoted piece of work by uh by meherabian Dr. Albert Mehrabian, and it's, uh, it's his piece of work where he identified that if emotions are being expressed, if you're having an emotionally charged conversation with somebody, then there's a certain ratio, as he had identified, to which the other person understands the message. So um, what he said was that the the way that other person will receive that is 55% through body language, 38% through tone of voice, and 7% through content, so the actual words used. And what's really fascinating about this is that concept had a very particular container. It had a re- and what I mean by that is it, the context for it was highly specific. And what I've observed many, many, many times is people take that ratio and exploit it for their own means to try and explain nonverbal communication in a, uh, in a way which isn't actually true. And personally, I find that quite frustrating because what ends up happening is that because there seems there's a seeming science attached to the uh, some, an, one aspect of non-verbal communication and body language that um, it makes it easy for people to kind of hold on to 
And in truth, we can't extrapolate. So we can't take what he said in that setting and apply it to lots of other scenarios because that's not what it was intended for and it's not what he had studied. So he hadn't studied, for example, um, if you're having a, if you're delivering a presentation to a, a large group of hundreds of people. You know, he didn't um, use the example of if you're conducting an interview uh, for recruitment purposes, that's not the same setting either. So there's, there's numerous other settings where that ratio just doesn't hold. And also it wasn't studied in that context. It was studied in a very particular context of having highly charged emotional conversations. So, so I, I started to become really aware that there was, that there's, there was much more nuance to this whole concept of emotions and emotional intelligence. That there's one thing around understanding, well, what are emotions at all? There's something then very closely attached to that, which is how do we even express them then? Which also links to the language that we use uh, for emotions. And uh, and then also, you know, how do we phys- how do we display them physiologically? What does it mean that I'm I'm um, expressing joy, or what does it mean that I'm expressing sadness? And the non-verbal stuff communicates that a plenty, but only if you're attuned to it, and only if you recognise what those things mean. So, it took then uh, some more time for me to really start to try and understand what do these things, how, how can I understand them better? And I'm going to come back to the work of Paul Ekman because it was around, I think, 2012 when I, I started to get to know Phil Wilcox quite well. And uh, those of you who listen to this podcast regularly will know that I reference his Emotion at Work podcast. And at the time he was delivering some training on behalf of a company um, who were licensed to deliver Paul Ekman's uh, research to enable much better understanding of emotional uh, intelligence, I suppose. Uh, and the, 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 I think it was three days training that I'd, I'd been on with him, really helped me to get a much, much clearer understanding of how we even define emotions. Where do we start? And on that basis, how can that enable us to have better relationships with, uh, with, uh, with other people? And not just, not just limited to partners or to you know, working colleagues or to best friends or anything like that, but just kind of in general, how can you use this uh, increased awareness and knowledge about emotions to essentially have uh, a more f- fulfilled life in one sense through the quality of relationships that you're having. Because if I can understand that the person that I'm talking to or engaging in a certain way, that they're having a certain kind of emotional reaction, that should mean that I then am able to regulate what I'm saying and or doing with that person so that they feel safe and that they feel comfortable enough that they can continue in a certain way. And I think that's what most people would like to be able to do. 
I think that's what most people want to be able to do is have a fulfilled conversation and a fulfilled relationship with somebody because they've been able to be heard or listen to the other person uh, and express a point of view um, and be respected in what they've said and through that whole interaction that you finish and or leave that conversation feeling that you really enjoyed that and it really made me question as to you know well how do we help develop this because this is really a fundamental set of skills it's a really a fundamental set of behaviors that we don't really get taught how to do these things we just learn how to do them through uh you know through kind of normal social convention and uh you know through the normal kind of development process that a person goes through it's quite rare that someone actually takes the time to be able to help you to understand well when you're feeling these types of emotions in these are different ways that you can react to those emotions so as an example with one of my sons when he gets angry he gets really intensely angry and he finds it really difficult to um, to be able to manage it in a way which which he uh, where he can express himself properly and i find it difficult to be able to help him work through it because he's feeling the uh, emotion in, in such an intense way that it takes um it, it it can take sometimes a bit of time and at other times it can all it can take is just um sitting down with him and uh, give him a hug and and then he'll immediately start to feel better and at other times that's not enough and he needs more support to be able to work through the emotion he's feeling and and what i'm trying to do when i when i do this with him is to help him understand that it's okay for him to feel anger that's never that's never an issue for me it's it's more that i i want him to be able to understand there's better ways to express that in a way that helps him to deal with it in a in in a better way for him and in a better way for his brother and sister as well and i wonder in in our schooling system you know i don't think it's something that our schooling system allows for because certainly not in the uk the focus is so much on the curriculum and learning a set of subjects to a certain standard that the important emotional development that a child goes through it is taken care of but it's just not given the the same level of focus as the uh, curriculum is and for me that it raises important questions then about well how do we help develop how do we help support that development because parents aren't necessarily the right people to also do that emotional development with their children because the parents themselves may be emotionally illiterate and i use that word carefully because everybody understands that we have emotions but not everyone understands how to regulate them so if i'm feeling sad about something i may not have the i may not have the language to be able to express my sadness and so the behaviors i display may be either contrary or they may be so intense that it's hard that i find it hard to be able to talk about those things or i may go off and do some really harmful behaviors because i have no other way to express myself and so it's 
I think there's important questions here that we need to be able to think about more clearly in how do we enable that emotional development. And you know, as young adults, as we start to become teenagers and our hormones are raging through our bodies in very, very many different ways, how does that also affect the um, tumult, I I guess, that's the only word I could think of, of emotions that we feel. You know, it's it's already a confusing time as it is because suddenly you're starting to feel all sorts of things as your body's growing and then you've got these emotions which are throwing you in all sorts of different ways. And unless you've got someone to help you try and make sense of those things, it can be really a challenging time. And then when you become even more of a um, uh, kind of a, I was gonna, even more of a young adult, I don't think that's possible. But as you start to get into your 20s and uh, that stage of your life when you know, it, uh, you're starting to perhaps hold down a job and starting to do more kind of social activities in lots of different ways. If you, if you haven't been, if you haven't had someone help guide you through your own emotional self-awareness and the impact and the behaviours that you're having on others and the way that you are with others, then how does that happen at all? You know, and who, who is it that's going to help give you that kind of guidance and feedback and coaching to be able to work through that stuff? Because if it's not your parents, because they can't, because they don't have the literacy for that. If it's not the schooling systems that you're going through, then who does it fall to? You know, does it fall to your friendships? Does it fall to the uh, work environment? Does it fall to um, a counsellor of some sort to be able to help those com- to be able to help that thinking happen? And and for me, I think there is that very very clear link that the quality of our thinking is related to the level of the emotion that we're feeling. And and there's a lot of people who struggle with that. Because they don't want to think that they that their thinking process is affected by their emotions, especially um, Brits. And I, I say this with a very broad brush. There are many Brits who really strongly believe that being emotional is a uh, is not a desired set of behaviours. And I I fundamentally disagree with that because. What that shows to me is a very clear lack of understanding about what emotions are. And the reason I think that we talk about emotion, people being emotional as being a bad thing is because we haven't taken the time to actually understand the, what, what emotions are meant to do for us as people. All we know, or rather, what many people seem to understand is that if I'm, if I'm feeling an emotion and I'm expressing it in a certain way and it's not being, it's not being expressed and or doesn't result in a positive outcome or a clear action, then it just feels like that there's an expression happening that is, that is valid but holds little value because there's no clear outcome for it. And actually, I think, uh, and then rather, and then what happens is, is that a person's thinking process is seen as a logical set of systems that we go through. And again, what that tells me is that there's a lack of understanding about 
Well, how do people even think? What does thinking mean? And there's a real, you know, there's a lot of really clever writing around these topics. Uh, and I guess one of the things is that some, often they're just not as accessible to most people. You know, they're very accessible to a certain group who enjoy reading these topics and trying to make make good sense of them and be able to use them in ways, uh, you know, be able to use these topics, subjects and self-awareness in ways that helps them to uh, deliver good work for other people. And, and I think that's great. And at the same time, I also think that there there is so much potential in these topics to be able to help increase people's awareness of what they what they feel and how what they feel translates into what they think and if they're thinking in a certain way then it means that their behaviors are going to be in a certain way as well and I I don't think it's always that linear and I, I know I've described it in that way but there is a clear link between your emotions what you think and your actions So I'm going to come right back to the uh, the development and the training that I went through when I went when I learned about this work from Paul Ekman and that Phil helped me to understand. And then from there, I've really started to give regular focus to understanding what emotions I'm going through, and when I'm being triggered into an emotion, and when I'm understanding that. Either I'm feeling sad, angry, upset, um, fearful, happy, surprised by something. That I, I always try and give myself a moment to really recognise um, one that I'm, I'm having that emotion, but but then secondly, uh, who am I with, and how can I express that in a way which helps them to understand what I'm going through. And sometimes it's not appropriate, right? So, for example, if something happens at work and I get angry, it's not appropriate for me to express that in a foul language way, or using foul language, rather. Whereas if I'm with friends and I get angry about something, I can use foul language and that's acceptable to them. So the context obviously matters around how we express emotions and to whom in what way. But also, to what intensity? If it's just a slight frustration, then I might just be able to hold on to that in myself and allow it to dissipate as it just naturally will do. Whereas if it's something quite core to my beliefs and values and I'm really annoyed that something's happened in a particular way, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to work through that with others and or in myself in order that I can get to a really strong place of uh, wanting to act on it and do something really positive about it. So, when, when it, so I think one of the things that it brings me to is when we think about emotions and when we think about the topic of emotional intelligence, I think one of the things that can be helpful around this is removing the language of, well, are they good? Are they bad emotions? Is it a positive? Is it a negative emotion? Because emotions aren't inherently one way or the other. They're not binary in that way. They have different levels of intensity and also the context in which we're experiencing them will will determine um, the uh, the usefulness of that emotion as well. 
So, for example, um, yeah, it's, it, it's not always helpful to describe anger as a negative emotion. It might be actually the right emotion to be feeling, depending on what's happened for you at the moment you're feeling anger. Which is why when my son feels angry about something, I often say to him, I have no problem that you're feeling angry. That's totally valid. It's the expression of it, which he often then struggles with. And his actions often are, are not the ones that I would like to see him display. And so we have to talk through that and I have to help him understand why they're not appropriate, even though he might be feeling angry and vindicated that he can act in a certain way. And so I, I, I think a lot of that is related to how we, how we understand what the purpose of emotions are. And so there's, there's an, for me, there's just an acceptance of being able to say and allow for others to be able to say, well, right now I'm feeling upset or right now I'm feeling fearful. And we don't have to fix that emotion in that other person if they're telling us that. I don't think it's ever about that. I think it's much more about that we have to be able to say that's um, uh, something along the lines of uh, I'm, I hear you. And I understand what I understand that you're telling me something. What do you need next? Right. So if someone's telling us that they're feeling fearful about something, we don't have to stop them being fearful. They may already know how to stop being fearful, but we can also. But I think what we can do is just provide a safe environment for them to be able to express that fear. Uh, as an example. Right. So and when we do that, it becomes much more empowering for that person to be able to know that they can have these emotions in a variety of different ways and it's okay to be able to express that to each other i I think if we start from that place it 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 at one level it allows for us to be able to let people express their emotions as they see best without feeling the need to have to um, logically, as we might normally assume, rationalise the emotion. Because it's, emotions aren't rational. Not in the way that we would normally assume. They're a very natural reaction to a trigger response of something which, inis- which elicits a, an emotion to happen. And so if we understand it from that perspective, what we can understand is that the emotion is perfectly valid. And all we need to do, at least at one level, is just accept that that's happening for ourselves and for somebody, for the person that we might be with. And that they probably have the tools and or strategies to be able to deal with that emotion. And if they don't, then that's important because they can let us know. I mean, they can and we can work through that collectively and collaboratively. And when when you have that and when you're able to give that level of support to someone, it's quite uh, significant because you, you really strengthen that bond and connection that you have with each other. And so I, I think the, I think if we can start from that place of acceptance of emotions as being a very healthy reaction to any number of things, then and we don't have to fix the emotion then it allows us to be able to start this process of understanding emotions and their purpose in a much more um, nuanced way 
and also a much more accepting way as well. So the piece then that I think that leads to is the quality of thinking that we have. And in, in recent times, and in, in kind of national and international politics, we've got lots of stuff happening around Brexit, around Trump, around, um, well, I guess that's a, just to take those two topics. Um, but actually, uh, on a very different scale, there's also lots of uh, conversation happening around things such as uh, feminism and uh, the treatment of women. And if we take those topics just as they are, there is, there is a lot of very good thinking that's going on in this place because in those different spheres, people have taken the time to really start to really understand the range of issues at hand and the way that they're being uh, and the messages that are being given around lots of things. So, for example, if we take Brexit as an example, there's a lot of rhetoric from people who are uh, leavers who say things such as uh, everything's going to be fine. Uh, everyone's making a big fuss. All of this stuff in the media is just project fear. And uh, actually, we're going to be really successful and it's going to be really prosperous for us, which is one level and one way to be able to think about stuff and on the other side you have uh, the remainers who are catastrophizing as is sometimes spoken about and who say things like um you know this is going to be a disaster for us and this is not the way that we should be dealing with this situation and the uh you know we, we don't have the right kind of deal to be able to make brexit work which is also another level of thinking. And what often ends up happening around the two is that people are talking from an emotional reaction to the vote itself. So if you voted to leave, then clearly you're already invested in wanting to leave. And that's valid. And due to that, your thinking and or uh, anything you read and the conversations you have the the uh, of the likelihood is going to be that it's going to be much more biased in favour of your vote, the way you voted, and your vote was probably driven by some kind of um, emotional reaction to something that you've read about, which you already had growing in you anyway. So for some people, it was about the uh, alleged control of EU over uh, British legis legislative law. For others, it was about um, fears of immigration and or migration. Uh, for others, it was about uh, this concept of sovereignty of UK Parliament. And so, you know, when you, if people voted with any one of those things and also anything else, which prompted them to believe that Brexit was the right thing to vote for, anything thereafter that they're reading will either fall into a camp of, yep, yeah, this is uh, helping me to, helping to validate my thinking. And because it validates my thinking, it entrenches my position. And anything that I'm reading and or hearing or seeing, which is against what I voted for, then I'm going to 
defend my own position and I'm not really going to listen to the other position because it's against what I believe. And that's a very emotional reaction. But people, and this is why I was saying earlier, people don't like to admit that because they don't want to think that their emotions could have driven that thinking process. Similarly, when it comes to the topic of feminism, there's many people who will say things like, uh, fem- feminism is not a helpful construct. It is, it's this, uh, there's an agenda behind wanting to talk about things um, again, uh, uh, of how women are harmed, and we're doing it at the expense of how men are harmed. And again, it's because there's a very emotion. I, I believe that there's a very emotional reaction that people are having who are against the concept of feminism, where what they're trying to do is they, they're struggling to understand, for whatever reason, that feminism is a, uh, is a way to be able to support women in society. They, they, they don't want to acknowledge that if it's uh, men who are often the ones who are uh, talking about this in a certain way, it tends to be around the, uh, the constructs that we have, the hierarchy, the um, societal constructs, the infrastructure we have, which is very, very in favour of men. And many men realising that, well, if we truly give equal rights and equality to women, then it means having to not necessarily let go, because that's often the failed thinking that goes on here, but it often means having to share much more collaboratively and collectively in the benefits of a lot of the structures that are in society that strongly benefit men, and ensuring that actually men and women can both enjoy the many benefits that should be available to everybody in society and that potential loss of uh, those benefits for one group in this case men is quite a thing right it's quite a it raises then quite a lot of emotions about uh, not uh, not wanting to let go of that stuff because i'm benefiting from that and if it and not that is, and it's not necessarily because they want to, that they want women to not benefit, but because it's always worked in their favour, why would they let go of that? And so that creates quite strong emotions in favour of wanting to keep with that, because it's it's clearly helping them. And so, again, I think what we what I'm hopefully trying to raise here is that if we can help people, if we can understand that, it creates a level of empathy that we might not want to allow ourselves to be able to experience. And and for me, I, I think it's, I think there's some really great examples of people in um, in society, and particularly kind of through the medium of like Twitter where what they're doing is they're reaching out to their detractors and to the people who are trying to get them into arguments. And they're trying to have just normal human conversations with them. And when they do that, it, you see the, you, you can read through the threads, the change in that person's language and the, the, 
the content of what they're saying fundamentally changes. So, for example, there's I remember reading a Twitter thread. I'm going to have to try and find it about this um, Muslim guy who has quite a large following and he regularly gets abuse on Twitter for being a Muslim. And instead of uh, trying to defend anything about what he is being attacked for, he tries he engages people in a very human way. So he'll say things like, uh, your, your avatar picture looks really great. Where were you when you had that taken? And when people res- respond back to that, they realise that he's taking a very um, different approach and it completely breaks the uh, um, the direction that they wanted to go in because they had a certain belief, they had a certain emotional reaction to him, not because they knew him as a person, but because they made some very strong stereotypes about him. And he was immediately dismissing, not dismissing that, um, he was immediately dissolving that because of his uh, emotional connection he was creating with others. I think that's powerful. I think it's really powerful because then what these people have done is they, they immediately start to say things like, look, I'm really sorry I said that. I'm having a bad day and I saw you say something and I reacted to you. Or you know, something like, um, I had a bad experience recently about something that you spoke about and that's what I'm pissed off about. It's not you. And when you when you read those reactions, you really start to understand that it's not because the person lacks the quality of thinking, it's that their thinking is driven by their emotions. And I find that really fascinating because what it also, I think, can lead to is it can... So I think it's perfectly possible to be able to hold a set of beliefs about something and for your uh, for the quality of thinking to be raised, right? So, for example, I'm... I, I voted Remain when it came to Brexit. I still believe that remaining is the right thing to do. At the same time, I completely respect that the overwhelming vote, well, not overwhelming, 58% 42, uh, 52% 48 rather, uh, I know there's a whole debate about if it's overwhelming or not or what have you. The majority vote was clearly in favour to leave. So I respect that and I absolutely respect that if that uh, if that's what we voted to do, then that's the thing we should follow through with. What I think we have failed at is we have failed in the way that we've approached Brexit. And what I mean by that is that I, I th- had we given ourselves, say, three to four years where we uh, where we worked in a, uh, with cross party uh, groups to uh, really outline uh, what we wanted from Brexit, what the future was going to look like, enabling the infrastructure across the UK so that once Article 50 was uh, submitted and we were working towards the two-year countdown, everything was in the right order and uh, or as best an order as it could be so that it, there would be less economic impact and we just haven't done that. So we've we've run ahead with this whole concept of we're going to leave the EU. And it's such a shit show because there's been really poor quality thinking going into it. Nearly everything about it has been very emotionally driven. 
you know, if we don't do it now, then we shouldn't have had the vote. If we, um, uh, if we don't go ahead and submit Article 50, then, uh, then we're going to be weak in the eyes of the global nations. And instead, what we've ended up showing very, very poorly about ourselves is that we've, uh, we haven't taken the time to really allow ourselves to think well about what we need from this. And that's what frustrates me. Yeah, so because I, I, if we're going to leave, let's leave well, right? Let's do it in the best way possible. Let's not do it on, on the basis that you need to support the Eurosceptics and, uh, uh, and acquiesce to their desires. Otherwise, because you don't want them to cause a revolt politically. Th- those things, for me is where I start to get really frustrated. But what I'm trying to say here is that even though I voted for, Bre- uh, for Remain, I totally understand that leaving is going to happen. That's not going to change. And so if we're going to do that, let's do it in a way which is helpful to the nation. Unfortunately, we're not doing that. And so it means then that I... Uh, I, I, I end up supporting a lot of messages which suggest we should continue to remain because I still believe that that's the right option for us to go ahead with. But what I've also realised through this whole process is that some, there are some really valid points when it comes to leaving. And it's it's because I've taken the time to try and work past my emotional standpoint of remaining is clearly the va- the better option which is by the way my own opinion and a very biased one and I completely acknowledge that um, and having to try to understand well if we leave it means that there are certain not benefits as such but there are uh, it, it, it invites a, a different set of thinking and because I've taken or rather because I've tried to engage with people to, to understand what those thought processes are it allows me to understand the leaver's perspective with with more empathy than I have uh, than I've had previously. I don't know if I've explained that as well as I wanted to, and I don't know if Brexit was the right example to use because it is a very emotive topic uh, and also a very divisive topic. And so, uh, I'm I'm, int- I'm intrigued to know if that worked for for the uh, for people who are listening to this or not. Where I was trying, what the point I was hopefully trying to make was that even though you you can have an emotional reaction to something, it doesn't mean that the quality of your thinking needs to be biased in favour of that. It will often be that, but it can also mean that you allow yourself to be more in, uh, more emotionally open to what else is happening, and therefore allowing better empathy. And better thinking around what else is going on around you. So I think I'm probably going to wrap up there. uh, Partly because it's just after 8pm on a Saturday night. And I'm hungry. I'm going to go and have my dinner. Uh, And uh, and more because I think I really enjoyed that actually, that exploration. And I hope this is a good one to be able to uh, engage you all with. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend, folks, whatever you're up to. 
and I'll catch you on the next episode.